God have mercy. Uh, it is pecan because we are in North Georgia, not South Georgia. You South Georgia people need to repent of how you pronounce the name of that most amazing food. Uh, grab your Bibles if you have them. If you don't, no worries. I'm gonna I'm gonna read through for you. But Genesis chapter three, verse eight to twenty four. And as you're turning, I'm gonna pray for us, and then we're gonna get after it. Father, we thank you for your great namesake. We thank you for. Christ, and we thank you for the good news, and we thank you for your word that is a lamp for our feet and light for our path. And Lord, I pray that right now, in this moment, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. You would teach us, guide us, remind us, tear down walls, instruct, grow us, send us a little forward in the faith, uh, that Jesus may be exalted, your name would be great, and we would grow up into Christ who is our head, so that we would not be tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine and every form of false teaching, but we would grow up into Christ, who is our head. Uh, so, Lord, do that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 3, 8 to 24, the curse of sin is curse of sin and God's greater grace. The curse of sin and God's greater grace. And we're going to see, with this little title as our covering, kind of putting over the top of what we're doing, we're going to see all through the Bible what Paul did uh, and what Paul taught from his exegesis of Romans 5, uh, we're going to see it all over the Bible. This truth that where there is sin, where there's the curse of sin, God's grace is always greater. You're going to see it from Genesis all the way to Revelation, which is why Paul will make this statement in Romans 5, 20 and 21, when he says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We're going to see that in our passage today. Because of sin and the curse of sin, as Lewis wrote in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because of Genesis 3, 8 to 24, it is always winter and never Christmas. But God doesn't leave us there even in that passage. We come to the end of the passage and we see what is true also in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that grace increases because Lewis will write, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. We're going to see that in our passage. As we walk through this passage, don't forget who the audience is. And that's very important as you're studying your Old Testament, particularly as we're studying Genesis, that the audience is Israel post-Egypt and all the idolatry and all of the false gods and all of the release from slavery and beginning to wander in the wilderness. Post-Egypt Israel, where they're seeking the kingdom of the promised land. And the audience is, let us not forget us today, the church, because this is Christian Scripture. The church in the world seeking the promised land of the kingdom rule of Jesus Christ over all things. So with that in mind, as the audience who's receiving this message from Moses, from the Lord, for our instruction, we ask some questions. What do we see in the passage? What does it mean for us? And then what do we do with it? How do we begin to apply it? Well, the first thing we're going to see here in our passage today is that Satan is the source of human conflict in the world. Satan is the source of human conflict in the world. This is revealed to us in the literary structure of verse 8 to 24. Yes, the literary structure actually speaks a message. Because you read this passage, it starts man, then woman, then Satan, then Satan, 
then woman, then man. Now, this forms a literary structure called the chiasm. And you probably didn't come asking for that today. But because God is the author of communication and He is the great communicator and He is the one who spoke in words and He spoke to men and He gave us writing, He is also the great creator of all things. And then writing, God is a creator and God uses literature and literary structure to communicate so that even in this passage, as he's inspiring Moses to write, he's communicating something about the source of this conflict that has now been introduced in the created order. And the source of that conflict is none other than Satan and the hordes of evil powers that he has led in rebellion against God, which is why Paul, preaching from the Old Testament, will write things like Ephesians 6.12 that tells us, for we wrestle not... Against flesh and blood, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The curse is going to set us against one another and one another against creation, with the source of that conflict being none other than Satan and the evil hordes following him themselves. So what do we do with that truth? Well, there are three things I want to share with you under this first point of application here. Number one, we have to recognize Satan's role and his agitation does not excuse our sinful actions in not obeying God's word. One of the things you're going to notice in this passage is because Satan is the source of human conflict and the one who breaks and introduces all of this destruction and death and devastation, it does not absolve mankind of his responsibility to obey the Lord and to obey his word. As a matter of fact, we know very clearly Adam and Eve knew the word of the Lord. They knew the instruction of the Lord. And as Satan comes and he distorts and he misquotes and he misnames and he deceives and he lies, they bought the lie, but it wasn't all put on Satan. There was responsibility that landed on Adam and Eve because they knew the word of the Lord. And so for you and I today, we recognize automatically that just because Satan is the source of human conflict doesn't mean we're absolved of sinful behavior. In fact, we're responsible for sinful behavior. Point of application number two. When there is human conflict. Now church, I want you to hear. Okay? I want you to hear. This will preserve us if you will hear it. When there is human conflict, it's Satan's delight. It's his work. And a failure to obey God's word leads to deeper and deeper difficulty. It's not as though the word doesn't speak to this. But when there is human conflict, the source is Satan. And we're responsible and God will hold us accountable to obey the word of the Lord. One of the great challenges, if you're ever going to be in leadership, if you ever want to step up and say, I will be a leader of anything, you better, and I just want to use this as a personal example. You know, you guys know me pretty well. There's not much hidden here. I will lay out before you all of my bones and all of my brokenness and all of my struggles and our family struggles. I'll just lay one before you today. One of the great challenges of being in leadership is assumptive things that people make about you. People will observe and they'll, and they do assumptive math. They say two plus two equals six because that's what I saw. And what they begin to do is they'll begin to talk about you. I'm telling you, 25 years in the ministry, 25 years in the ministry, there hasn't been a year go by that somebody won't make some kind of assumptive mathematical assertion and then they start talking. 
And by the time it gets to you, it's so out of control that when you start trying to weave your way back and, and obey the Lord, right in Romans chapter 12, that tells us, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people, right? And you try to address it. What you begin to notice is that the kingdom of darkness likes to use the people of God to create darkness and put a cloak over the source of things. So that you can't even weave your way back and address it with the source where it needs to be addressed. And what people don't recognize is Genesis 1 never calls darkness good. There's nothing in darkness that's good. There's nothing in darkness that brings delight to God. As a matter of fact, the tenor of Scripture is shine the light of Christ on it. Put it in the light. The light will kill it. And so what we recognize is when there is human conflict, it's Satan's delight and and it's his work. And our failure to obey the Lord and put things in the light just leads to deeper difficulty and deeper alienation. So I say to us, dear church, close thy lips. And if you don't know, even be more tight-lipped. And if you have a question, you go to any source and you ask. Put all things in the light because a failure to put it in the light leads to deeper conflict. So what we do is is we expose all things to the light. We expose all things to the truth. So that we are not an object or even a calculating or uncalculating tool of the evil one to spread death and destruction. Because the source of human conflict is none other than Satan himself. And the harsh reality is we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But if the wrestling is against flesh and blood, you be aware it is satanic in its origin. Darkness and cover-up is satanic. Shine the light of the gospel on it. Shine the light of Jesus Christ on it. Let the light heal. We're not agents of death and destruction. We're agents of light. So we deal with things in the light, right? We recognize that where there is cover-up and darkness and a refusal to deal with the core issue, there is Satan. What else we see in our passage today? We see, we see that sin's consequences are devastating. And they have the effect of death and destruction on the rest of humanity and created order. Sin's consequences are devastating and they have effect on the rest of humanity and created order. We see this in verse 8, 10 and then verse 14 to 19. First verse 8 and verse 10, we see sin's consequences for theology. We see sin's consequences for theology. Adam and Eve no longer know the Lord. And they don't know Him well. Look at verse 8 and verse 10. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Verse 10. And he said, and this is Adam speaking, after the Lord has asked the rhetorical question, where are you? God's not playing hide and seek. He knows where they are. He's calling forth confession. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. We begin to see something very important here. And that is because of sin and the devastating consequences of sin, man's theology is warped and he no longer knows the Lord rightly. There's never been a reason for Adam and Eve to fear the Lord in terror. When the Bible speaks of fearing the Lord, it doesn't mean terror. It means respect and awe and wonder and worship and kneeling and bowing and honoring and adoration. Not terrorized. But what happens here? The Lord comes to walk with His people and they run from Him because they begin to make assumptions about who He is. 
Moses is communicating something vital to them and he's communicating something vital to us today. And that is the source of their idolatrous tendencies. And that is that obedience to the demonic idolatry that surrounds them in the wilderness and the nations in which they are going and the idolatry that surrounds us today will end in death as it ended in death and the curse for Adam and Eve. Because Moses who wrote this to Israel as they're preparing and looking to inherit the kingdom of the promised land also wrote to them Deuteronomy 4.35 in which he says, To you it was shown... What was shown? Well, verse 35 is following up him reminding them about Egypt and the idolatry and the rescue from all of that sinful demonic stuff and rescuing them. He says, to you it was shown. Why? That you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides him. He also says to that same crew in Deuteronomy 32, 17 to 18, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. You see, after Eden, the devil doesn't just show up and converse with people often anymore. His cover is blown. So he begins to use little g-gods. Which is what God identifies as idolatry and identifies as demonic in its nature. To be a snare to God's people. Idols, these little g-gods, being demonic, begin to appeal to their senses. As we saw and Pastor Josh pointed out in Genesis 3, 1-7. Which John is going to preach from in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15-17. to Where these demonic entities, disguised as little deities, appeal to the lust of the flesh, the lust of eyes, and pride in life. Why? Because idols are useful. Idols are useful. <laughs> Satan was useful. I, he, I can know more. I can, I can get what God is holding out on me. Just obey me. Do what I'm saying to do. See, idols are useful. And here's the reality. God's not useful. He's God. And as God, He demands to be worshipped, not used. He's not a means to an end. He is the end. And so therefore, little g-gods, demonic entities are useful and they will help you get what you want. But God is not useful. He's God. He's the potter. We're the clay. But they and we want usefulness for our purposes. So they and we will often take our idols and we call them Jesus. You see, what they were doing as they began to wander and as they began to come into the promised land is they took Asherah, who would give them fertility, and called Asherah Yahweh. They took Baal, who could give them crops, and they called Baal Yahweh. Why? Because... In the curse and because of sin, they don't know the Lord rightly. They forgot His Word. His Word wasn't a lamp for their feet and a light for their path. So what did they do? They followed their own inclinations, the lust of their eyes, the lust of their flesh and pride in life. And what they just did was they were too sharp. They were too sharp to just go after Baal. They just called Baal the Lord. And you see, we're not that far off because we will take me and call me Jesus. My interests and call them the Lord God. 
We'll take our family and call our family Jesus. We'll take our advancement and our moving forward and our comfort and our consumption and we'll call it Jesus and we'll cloak it in getting more. And what we see is, from this passage, they don't know the Lord rightly anymore and it leads to a warped theology. And know this, all theology leads to practice. There's no such thing as non-application. If you believe something, you will act on it. It's, number one, the nature of humanity. And number two, it's the nature of just human life. We all have to act, don't we? Now, this is probably a little more thinking you want to do this morning. But you're exercising faith. You've heard me say this before. You're, you're, you're exercising practical faith right now because you're sitting in a chair you didn't make. And you don't know who made it or how well they put it together. But you've got all your weight on that chair. You're doing something with some kind of faith right now. We're always acting out a belief. What you believe you will do. And the reality is, is when our theology is warped, we will act on it. And the danger of idolatry is we take what we believe. And if we just call it the right name, our conscience feels good about it. Which is one of the reasons as Christians, if we believe the gospel, it has to move from orthodoxy to actual practice. If the gospel fixes broken things and by Lord, we better begin to work on fixing broken things with that good news and the values of God's kingdom. So if we know the Lord rightly, we have to begin to act rightly. But sin and the curse devastated our theology. Here's a truth I heard in graduate school. There's no such thing as not being a theologian. Everybody's a theologian. Because theology is a study of God. Atheists or theologians. The question isn't, are you a theologian? The question is, are you a good one or a sloppy one? And so, sin and the curse warped our theology. We also see that sin's consequences extended to the serpent. We see here, verse 14. Eve said, the serpent deceived And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Since consequences for the serpent is whether willing or unwilling, we don't know. Whether willing or unwilling, the serpent on its part under Satan's ploy is sent to an existence of death. The idea of eating dust and crawling in dust is a Hebrew way of saying death would be its portion. And the point of this passage, the point of this this consequence on the serpent, is whether willing or not, sin affects it. And here's an application for you. Willing or not, sin affects everybody in the room. We don't know if the serpent was willing. We don't know if the serpent was unwilling. What we know is Satan used the serpent. And in using the serpent, the serpent was sentenced to a life of death for the rest of his existence on this physical planet. Now, I don't know about you, but most of y'all probably think that a good snake is a dead snake. Death. It's not true, by the way. I like animals, and so don't kill them unnecessarily. So, you know, um, point being... Willing or not, sin affected it. Hey, guess what? Willing or not, sin affects everybody in the room. It affects everybody in the room. Because willing or not, sin affects everything. 
We see the consequences for the woman in verse 16. The fall brought the woman pain and childbearing and domination by the man. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The fall brought about pain and childbearing. This word pain is also a word that can mean and often is used in the Old Testament for emotional angst as well as physical pain. Meaning that childbearing will not only bring physical pain, but it will also bring the emotional angst of how this is going to work out. We also see that as a result of the fall, result of sin and the curse, that women would be dominated by men. It says, your desire shall be for your husband. The same word used here in verse 16 for desire is the same word used in chapter 4, verse 7. When the Lord says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, its desire is for you. Meaning there would be now this, this, this moving to seek to dominate on the part of both. What God had intended to be a beautiful union of unity moving forward on the command to fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it would now become a tug of war between both on who is going to dominate who. And what we've seen in human history is that men have sinfully dominated women. And the sinful response is what we call feminism today. Both are sin. And it's a result of the curse. Unfortunately, many in our own tribe have used this passage, which is not a positive proclamation for how it's supposed to be, as justification for men being lorded over women. This is the curse. This is not a prescription for how it's supposed to be. As Pastor Josh reminded us as he's been teaching... God took Eve out of the side of man to be beside him, not from his feet for him to lord over her or from his head for her to lord over him. But God took her out of his side that together they might be on mission. Now there are clear things in the Bible that teaches us there are roles for men and women. But the reality is, women, I want to say this to you and I want you to feel this. You are good leaders. And just because a guy is a man, duh, does not mean he should be leading if he's a bad leader. And often we have said, you're a man, so you deserve this position. And we've taken women who are better leaders, and they sit there watching a guy who can't manage his way out of a paper bag, and they languish going, I'm being wasted. And I want to hear you say, and I want you to hear me say, you are needed to lead. Because God made you to work with us, not over us or under us, but with us for the advance of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This isn't a positive proclamation for how it's supposed to be. It's a consequence of the fall. You hear that? And in Christ, you and I are being redeemed to move forward together in the roles He's made for us in the advancement of the kingdom. We see sin's consequences on the man, verse 17 to 19, that the fall brought painful work for the man right up to death, verse 17 to 19. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The fall brought painful work for the man right up to death. 
We see they sinned by eating, and so they would suffer to eat. Eve led her husband to sin, and so she'd be mastered by him. They brought pain into the world by their disobedience, and so they would have painful toil in their respective lives. And the serpent ruined the human race, and so he would be destroyed. We see these inevitable consequences of disobedience. And in the case of the man here, we see that from disobeying the Lord in regard to the work of the ground, he would struggle for the rest of his life to work just to get some produce. I think it's important to recognize here. I think it's very important to recognize. Work is not part of the curse. The difficulty of labor is part of the curse. God gave us labor before the fall. Laziness is a sin. It's harder now because of the curse. But work itself is not the curse. So men, we should be hard workers. We should be striving to be better. Not passive in our effort, but active in our effort to get better. Galatians 6, 7 reminds us here, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. This whole biblical notion that what one sows in sin, they will reap equally in return. This is not karma. A godless force working. But God, the creator of the universe, Jesus Christ, so wired the world so that we image bearers, whatever we sow, we get in return. When we sow sin, we reap the consequences of sin. When we sow to the Spirit, Paul will teach us in Galatians, we receive the fruit of the Spirit. Which is why Paul will tell us in Romans, right? The flesh is against the Spirit, the Spirit is against the flesh. So if we sow to the flesh, we're going to get flesh. But if we sow to the Spirit, and we put to death the deeds of the flesh, we get life. Right? That's how God's wired the universe. So a few points of application. One, don't be fooled. Sins affect, sin affects everyone, not just the person doing the sin. This is important, church. This is important. Don't think that because you don't give up the sinner, that that sin isn't affecting everybody in the room. If you hide darkness and keep darkness under cloak to protect anyone, you're sinning, you're covering sin, and it affects the atmosphere. This would be real honest with you. You ever walk in this room and feel like it's pushed down and subdued? And you may not be discerning God. You may have a discerning bone in your stinking body. But I would say to you, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you ought to be able to discern when something ain't right. And sometimes I wonder if we walk in this room and we're covering up darkness and things are hidden and the fruit we're getting off of it is a subdued atmosphere. I just wonder. Don't be fooled. Sin affects everybody. Whether willing or not, the serpent was affected by sin. Whether willing or not, you walk in this room and you're affected by what's covered up in this room. Also recognize sin's payout is always the curse of death. Sin never gives life. Sin never gives life. That's the fooling of it. That's what, that's what Satan sold Adam and Eve. You will get this. This is good. And they ate and immediately recognized, uh-oh. Sin is always that way. It promises what it can never deliver. And as soon as we partake, death begins to happen. Rot begins to take place. And third point of application, avoid sin. That's a no-duh. Avoid sin. 
Have the courage to be right. Have the courage to do right. Have the courage to act right. Have the courage to speak right by the Word of God as it is a lamp for your feet and a light for your path. As my missions professor used to say, it's in the manual. There's nothing in the Bible that won't speak to any circumstance today, whether explicitly or by principle. It's in the manual. May I just say this? I grow really tired of Christians coming and struggling. And when I ask the question, have you read this? And the answer is no. Why? Why won't we turn to the Word of God, listen and obey? Why is that? You ever wonder if that might not be a satanic ploy to keep us from the truth? What is it that keeps us from opening the manual and reading? And I'm not talking about the secondary responses or the secondary issues. I'm talking about what's the heart core issue that doesn't give me the passion to go and overcome any challenge to know the word of the Lord. As if it won't give me life. You know what I've found is we will do what we want to do. You ever notice that? You will do what you want to do. You will find a way to manipulate and make happen whatever you want. You ever notice that? I'm a master at it. If I want it, by Lord, it's going to happen. I will find a way. And you're just like me. Because you too have a flesh that's tainted. We do what we want to do. And here's the deal. Why is it we don't want the word more than anything else? I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a theme in Genesis about the word of the Lord. The Lord spoke and life happened. The Lord spoke and things came forth. The Lord said and they were to obey. The word of the Lord is a key issue, which is why John is going to call Jesus the word. Because he's the one speaking it into existence, giving the order. So when he becomes flesh, John calls him the word. Why is it we don't want the word? Could it be a satanic ploy? Oh, I think so. Because that ploy creates human conflict because we don't know, because we haven't read and we haven't studied. Then we act in ignorance with a bad theology. And next thing you know, we have chaos on our hands. And we go, what happened? You didn't obey the word of the Lord. Sin creates death. But we also see here in verse 8 through 13 that sin requires confession. Sin requires confession. Sinners confronted by God must confess. They must confess. They can't justify themselves or pass the buck. Let's look at Adam's confession very quickly in verse 9 through 13. So the Lord God comes and he called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Theology's already warped. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Look at his response. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. (laughs) He was singing a song about her in the first chapter. First piece of poetry and song. It's the first love song. I don't know much, but I know why I love you. Right? Is that pretty? It's got to sing good. Like, you know, this beautiful. We like, we, we love the love songs. This is it right here. If you could put that in the song, behold, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. It's a song. It's poetry. He's writing poetry. And now he's like, uh, that thing you gave to me with me, she did it. He's passing the buck. He's looking the other way. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's their fault. It's your fault. It's not my fault. 
We want to pass the buck when we sin. We want to blame it on somebody else. It's somebody else's fault. But the bottom line is, if I've sinned, it's my fault. God requires confession, not passing the buck, not looking the other way. Look at Eve's confession, verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, it's my fault, Lord. No, the serpent deceived me and I. She passed the buck. One of the funny scriptures in the Bible is when Moses is up on the mountain. And he's up there a while, 40 days, right? And the people go, where'd this cat go? We need, we need some gods to go before us. We don't, the Lord, we, this is kind of new for us. Make us something to see. And, and Aaron gathered all their gold, not all, but some of their gold. He took it and, and, and he made, he fashioned, fashioned something, right? The Lord, he says, behold, you're God, the Lord. Moses comes down and he hears the sound, there's bad stuff going on, and there they are in front of an idol. And he calls Aaron to account. What did Aaron say? I don't know. These people came and I, I took this gold and threw it in the fire and out came this calf. You read that's just the funniest like Come on, man. He didn't just walk out the fire. You you were involved. You were complicit. You said yes when you ought to have said no. You didn't have any courage to say no. So you feared man, not God. Your theology's warped. You worship man, not God. You're your own best idol. And you've called him the Lord. Because your concern is what's first, Aaron. And then you put the hammer to the gold to form it into this idol. And he's like, I don't know. Let's put Here we are. It doesn't work. Understand this, confession doesn't earn forgiveness. That was earned at the cross. Confession is where God appropriates tangible grace to the saint to show them their sin and the richness of His mercy to us. God requires confession. It's not enough to pass the buck. Which is why we'll read things like Psalm 32, 1-5 when David will say this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You see, to pass the buck is self-deceit. It's lying to yourself. Verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, and through my groaning all day long. Verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength is dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Which is why John will come in 1 John 1, 9 and say, If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just forgive and cleanse all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The curse of sin brings about actions. Our theology's bad. We pass the buck and we never want to admit it. And God comes and says, this is not sufficient. Passing the buck won't work. So therefore, we bring sin to the light. Here's our little application here. Don't hide sin. Shine the light of God's word on it. Here's the beautiful thing about Scripture. Scripture the writer of Hebrews will tell us the word of God is living and active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It'll penetrate to the division of soul and spirit, joint and matter, joint and marrow and judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The scriptures get down to those hidden places we don't want to show anybody or we talk about at parties. 
So when you're alone in that time and you're reading the manual, the Holy Spirit has a way of going, stop that. The Holy Spirit has a way of going, that's wrong. The Holy Spirit has a way of bringing to remembrance what we want to push down. That's because God, being gracious and kind, will put His hand on us and push down and create pressure. That's why when your sin gets confronted, you feel your blood pressure increase. And you feel this tightness in your chest and the fluttering of your heart. And you don't know quite what to do. And you kind of get itchy and you kind of get funky and you get feely. And you don't know exactly. That's the Holy Spirit causing His created order of your body to tighten up and go do something. So don't hide sin. Shine the light of God's word on it. Shine the light of agreeing with God about it. That's what John means in 1 John 1, 9. The confession of sin is the agreeing with God about it. Saying, God, you're right, I'm wrong. Shine the light of telling somebody about it. The Bible teaches us to confess our sins to one another. I'm just going to imagine here for just a moment. I wonder what would have happened... Death's already been introduced to created order, and I don't know, just my imagination. I wonder what would have happened if Adam and Eve had instantly ran to the Lord after they ate and said, God, we just screwed up bad. And I know this is already messed up, but would you have mercy on us? I don't know what would have happened, and that's not what happened. And really to imagine what would have happened is kind of futile. But I do know this. What will happen when we run to the Lord and confess and agree And seek the tangible grace of God and all the forgiveness that's purchased for us by Christ on the cross. There is definitely human flourishing that happens as a result of that. I think you will notice if you hide your sin, it's not even physically healthy. David even speaks to it here. My bones wasted away. There's something about pushing down in your conscience. The convicting Holy Spirit that creates a physical toll on the body. And if you've been guilty of that, you know what I mean. You can't sleep. If you can sleep over your sin and you're comfortable with it, you might need to check your salvation. But I tell you this, when I hide my stuff from the Lord, I can't rest. If I don't, if I don't, I have to go, I have to be alone because I have to talk this stuff out loud. I pray weird, which is why I think the Lord wants us, most of our prayer to happen in a closet. Because when I talk to the Lord, it's strange. It's out loud. I go on walks, I go work out, I run so I can talk to Jesus out loud and we, and he, and, and I yell at him sometimes and that may, you may not do that because I'm mad and then he convicts me and corrects me and I ain't got no reason to be mad and so I have to repent and we talk out loud and that may make you uncomfortable but that's what happens to me in my closet because I can't function if I don't tell him how I messed up. And until I do, there's a tightness on me and it's awful. So don't hide it. Shine the light of God's word and truth on it. Tell somebody about it. And the Lord will work gracious things. And finally, verse 20 to 24, where sin abounds, God graciously intervenes. Adam displays the fruit of faith by looking forward to life. And he acts accordingly. Verse 20. Where sin abounds, grace intervenes. I think what's beautiful about verse 20 is... That on the back end of sentencing, Adam exercises faith. Adam displays the fruit of faith by looking forward to life and then he acts accordingly because Adam named his wife Eve. Eve means life giver. This is interpreted by Moses and you see this in the passage because after he says the man called his wife's name Eve, comma, 
because, because is the introduction of Moses' comment on his naming her Eve. Eve means life giver. Moses says, because she was the mother of all the living. They just got finished being sentenced by God. I don't know about you, but if I just received a just sentence for my transgression, I don't know that I'm speaking about life. (laughs) But what does he do? You're no longer woman, you're Eve, you're life giver. Why? Because we anticipate that God is going to be good and kind and gracious and merciful and give life in spite of our sin. Adam just received the sins for sin. And he exercises faith that God is good. His theology is starting to be repaired. God is already at work. Even when Adam isn't looking. Even in the judgment for sin. God is working. Although they may be under the curse. Adam knows that God is good. And he will be good and just. Man can't grow crops correctly now. Without strenuous labor. So how can he believe God? Because God's at work. Ephesians 2.10, Paul preaches about this when he says, By grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing, it's God's gift. God's gracious to them in spite of their sin, and he gives a seed of faith. And he looks and says, there will be life because God is good. We see that God increases grace when he substitutes the sinner's guilt and shame with the innocent skin of one executed in their place for their sin. We preached on this last week. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. God's gift through faith is a substitute sacrifice. God is good to prevent fallen existence forever. By not allowing access to the life-giving tree. And in so doing, he brings about death to defeat death. There's 20... To 22, or verse 22 to 24, then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and the, um, at the, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Jesus fulfills this forward-looking passage by death on a tree to defeat death for all who would look to Him and believe and have life through His death. You see, it would be an awful thing for God to allow them to live forever in this fallen state. But what does He do? He cuts off life on this earth forever so that they might die, thus ending painful death. He kills death by death. And I think we preached about that last week. God beats the curse with the curse. And in this forward-looking passage, looking forward to what will happen when the Son of God is hung on a tree, that by that death, He would kill death for all those who would believe. It was a gracious thing for God to bring them to a place of death, which is why I preached both my parents' funerals. I was able to make this statement, death is not to be feared for the Christian. It is our slave to usher us into that state by which Jesus is preparing us for the eternal kingdom. So how do we end? Preach this good news of the kingdom and the gracious grace of God that is greater than sin to yourself and those around you. And then listen to this. Massage it down into the fabric of everything in created order. Work out the gospel in all things. Work it out in economics. Work it out in poverty. 
Work it out in race relations. The Facebook Live is posted. You can go listen to it if you weren't there this morning. Work it out. And then live by faith. Live by faith. Jesus has overcome. He's brought death under His reign. Death is under His reign. Death is under His reign. This is a side note. Rabbit trail. This is why we can be risky as Christians. You understand? See, to value safety is to devalue the gospel. Jesus has killed death by death. Therefore, we can be risky because death can't hold us. Death is our slave. It is God's instrument now to complete His sanctification of us. And so because we can live by this faith and Jesus has brought death under His reign, we don't have to fear it. We can live with reckless abandon for the kingdom of God and building the kingdom of Jesus Christ with Jesus Himself. So Christian, this is why we call you to enter domains and work recklessly for the sake of the gospel. Because nothing can kill you. Nothing. It may take your life, but as Jesus said, not a hair of your head will perish. At the resurrection, Jesus laid the foundation of the new heavens and the new earth with this gospel message. And we are now building on that foundation with Jesus by faith. And this is the passage, and I'm going to stop and we're going to worship. Jesus has laid the foundation of the new heaven and the new earth, and the gospel is how we build. And we are now building on that foundation with Jesus by faith. So therefore, 1 Corinthians three eleven to 15. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. My aim is to get there and not have to have my works burned up. And just get through smelling like smoke. Build on this foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones. With this gospel message, massage down into everything. And if we do that, if we do that, we are truly Christians. And living this thing out in the world to repair it and save those who will believe by faith. Let's pray and worship. Father, we ask that now in Jesus' name you would use your word and cause it to work itself out. God, I pray that you will do great things this morning uh, through your word. I pray, God, that you will take it and you will massage it down into our souls and bring about, bring about, bring about, bring about life. God, I pray against the lies of the evil one that you would not let them have effect on our souls, that we would believe anything that's untrue, but we would believe truth. We believe what is true, what is right. God, I pray that you would do a work now of releasing our souls to make much of you. If there's anything, God, that's preventing that atmosphere of freedom, God, I pray you'd kill it, cut it off, that you would be heard clearly, and that we would respond in obedience with freedom. God, I pray you bring forth worship from your people now. We ask this in Jesus' name.